welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian O'Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Arpita Kodaveri, a graduate student at the University, European University Institute. We will discuss her article, Wildlife First, People Later, Forest Rights and Conservation Towards an Experimentalist Governance Approach, which is published in the Journal of Indian Law and Society. So welcome to the show, Arpita. Thanks, Brian. Thank you for having me. Yeah, no, my pleasure. I'm really glad that we we met up on on Twitter, and uh, I really was interested in your paper, uh, and especially in sort of the the background or context in which you wrote it. So, I, mean, I wonder if for people who might not be so familiar with kind of Indian history, Indian conservation, and Indian peoples, you could talk a little bit about the context in in which you're writing this paper. I mean, what's what's really at stake in the problems you're describing? Absolutely. So India's forest conservation story is deeply tied to its colonial history. So a lot of the forest laws that continue to inform forest conservation today uh, were a product of that colonial encounter. So sort of the the logic of conservation from the colonial period to independent India was to assert state control over these resources and to make sure that they have access and control to use these resources for economic purposes, whether it was timber or coal mines or iron ore. And the problem in India's forests is similar to many forests in the global south, which is the overlap of interest of indigenous communities or Adivasi communities and what have what has now been categorized as forest dwelling communities in the Indian context, who have been denied their rights over forest land and access to resources because of the idea of exclusionary conservation. And by exclusionary conservation, what I basically mean is laws which provide for complete state control to the extent that any human interference or use of resources is seen as um, something that takes away from the pristine nature of the forest and, and does a, has an adverse impact. So there's a, there's a tension there, basically. And my paper tries to address that particular tension, which uh, was amplified because a case was filed before the Indian Supreme Court, which challenged a progressive law which is called the Forest Rights Act, that actually recognized the rights of forest-dwelling communities. But unfortunately, uh, you know, corresponding reconciliatory amendments were not uh, made in the, in the older forest regime. Well, maybe you could talk a little bit about the particulars of one of the disputes between forest dwelling communities, the government, and conservation groups, so people can get a kind of a better picture of sort of what's really at stake. I mean, are like how large are these communities? How large are the forests in question? And what are the nature of the disputes between the forest dwelling communities and conservation groups and the government? 
Right. No, I think that's a great question. So in terms of the scale of this conflict or this dispute, right, it's 8% of India's population are categorized as what is known as scheduled tribes or Adivasis who are dependent on forest resources for their livelihood. So that's a that's a large number. And the nature of these conflicts really varies. But an example that immediately comes to mind is one of the uh, the case studies that I'm working on for my thesis as well, where uh, there's an expanding coal mine in the forests of Sundargarh in Orissa, which is the eastern state of India. And the dispute there is, you know, twofold. One, the communities are being relocated because the state has absolute control over these areas, what are categorized as coal-bearing areas. And at the same time, you have conservation groups trying to kind of look at the climate change angle to this particular dispute. But funnily enough, uh, the idea of climate justice has not really informed these struggles to a great extent. I think another example that could be useful is in in the 1970s in India, you know, tiger conservation became a priority for the government in terms of uh, passing legislations. So you had Project Tiger, which was largely focused on this issue of tiger conservation, and it created what came to be known as tiger reserves. And Conservationists pushed for these areas to be exclusively areas that, you know, the tiger inhabited, which meant that the communities who lived within these tiger reserves were to be relocated. So that is at the heart of this conflict, which is the exercise of rights by the indigenous communities is seen as violating the rights of the forests and the tiger. But uh, the more you dig into sort of political ecology and, and the growing sort of discourse in ecology now, it's transforming. It's it's really not tenable to sort of push communities away and create these uh, what they call inviolate areas or or areas which are purely for the purpose of conservation. Well, so maybe you could talk a little bit about the Forest Rights Act. Like when was it passed? What was it supposed to to do or what was it intended to do and where have tensions arisen between the act and sort of its purposes and the needs of indigenous peoples so the forest rights act was passed in 2006 um it was passed at an interesting time in india's uh, you know political movement because we had a lot of rights based legislations being passed between that you know year of 2006 to 2011 and what was interesting about the forest rights act was it's a product of the social movements you know constantly asking for a legislation that recognizes the rights of these communities and the act in essence tries to do that what it does is it recognizes a range of rights of forest dwelling communities, which includes a you know, right to homestead land, the right to cultivate for self-sustenance, the right to uh, conserve what is historically an area that the indigenous community has been conserving. And it tries to, in many ways, uh, allow for the voice of these communities to inform decisions of conservation. 
it was in many ways also i would term it as quite a, a radical and rebellious law and i say that because it it's it's trying to undo a a history uh, an institutional history of conservation that has always functioned in the paradigm of excluding forest dwelling communities so it's it's pitting one legal regime against the other and that's also been one of the difficulties that the act has faced in its implementation when problems have arisen between the forest rights act and the interests or needs of indigenous communities what's kind of been the source of those problems what what's what's kind of causing the tension or dispute here so the interests and needs of forest dwelling communities again is very difficult to articulate in in one voice right because it's a heterogeneous community they have a multiple set of interests um they're also in many ways you know engaging with the market and the state in myriad of ways and evolving so there are conflicts and tensions sometimes you know between uh, particularly the forest dwelling communities which are legally categorized as the scheduled tribes and those who are not scheduled tribes the forest rights act itself creates this artificial binary what it does is it says that communities who've been legally categorized by the indian state as scheduled tribes under the indian constitution which is basically a list of communities who've been identified historically as being marginalized and living independent on forest areas and then you have another set of communities who are not categorized as scheduled tribes and so they have then within the law required to produce evidence that they have lived and depended on forest areas for a period of 75 years and it's a difficult ask for a a, a forest dweller who's who in many cases and in many instances in interviews that i've had seldom have access to that kind of evidence so when they do apply for their rights within this law which is supposed to recognize their rights it seldom does get recognized so there's a high sort of um, rate of rejection particularly for their claims uh, to forest land or homestead land and that has created a lot of tensions on the ground within the communities um the other challenge has also been uh, this idea of the scheduled tribes being sort of naturally attuned to conserve or what they call themselves or you know some of the bureaucrats that have interviewed have categorized them as sort of a worthy steward you know they've historically kind of inherited this kind of traditional knowledge whereas the non scheduled tribes are seen as um not bearing this this history and cultural uh, lineage and you know harboring this traditional knowledge to be able to conserve so that's created a lot of tension on the ground uh, and also sort of uh, informed some of the the claims that the organization wildlife first which has filed a case before the supreme court has also used to its advantage to some extent do you think this distinction between the scheduled and non-scheduled tribes is a fair or accurate one i think it's it's very contextual in terms of uh, who has been categorized and who hasn't so 
let me first address the question of fairness, right? The criteria for being recognized as scheduled tribe uh, is is quite, uh, in some ways, a lot of scholars have argued that it is quite discriminatory because it has terms like uh, shyness, um, geographical isolation, backwardness as sort of the criterias that communities have to be able to fulfill to be recognized as scheduled tribes. So there's that particular sort of critique. Um, So inclusion into this list already becomes difficult. And uh, once included, of course, a lot of benefits follow. But it's this, you know, delicate dance of inclusion and exclusion that has sort of guided state decision making on recognizing communities or not recognizing communities. I remember once when I was in Uttar Pradesh in northern India, there was a story where in one village, uh, a community called Kol was recognized as scheduled tribe, whereas just across the border into the other state, uh, they were not recognized as scheduled tribes. So marriage between those two communities were not happening because of this uh, inability to, uh, you know, uh, claim this particular legal categorization and, and the benefits that follow with it. So that's just an anecdote. But uh, yeah, so the fairness question is is a tough one. I think it's important to be able to legally categorize these communities in order to understand uh, what benefits and protections they deserve. But I do think the framework that guides that at the moment is fairly um it's fairly redundant to uh, some extent, and I think it needs it needs a broader framing that allows for the inclusion of other communities as well, because you have a lot of um, lower caste or Dalit communities who are also dependent on forest areas, and they have their own history and story of marginalization. Well, based on your paper, it sounds like some of the conservation groups sort of pushing Forest Rights Act related claims have ideas about how those claims can be squared with the needs of interests of indigenous peoples who are making claims on forest land as well. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about sort of how conservation groups see this problem and what they're missing. So the way conservation groups see this problem is they think about communities living within forests as communities experiencing a development deficit. And what I mean by that is uh, rigid conservation laws restrict the extent of um, quote-unquote development that can take place in the form of infrastructure, for instance. Because even if a road has to be built, it has to go through a rigorous process of approval uh, and the forest department then, you know, sort of eventually makes that decision. Similarly, access to education and healthcare, even electricity, is, is quite difficult in these remote areas. So conservationists often feel that if communities are relocated from these forests, then automatically they gain better access uh, to education, healthcare, and other basic facilities. While some of it is true, because I have personally witnessed in my fieldwork in different uh, you know, tiger reserves and other spaces, 
that communities do lack access to education and healthcare. The aspect that these groups are definitely missing is the cultural attachment that these communities have to the land and uh, the cultural kind of uh, bond that they share, not just with the forests, but with the creatures as well. So the idea of relocating communities is also an exercise of breaking their cultural links to the land. And very often that is something that conservation groups are very, uh, you know, tend to miss and tend to look over. Well, so your paper is sort of framed around a particular dispute that came before the Supreme Court. I wonder if you could talk a little bit kind of specifically about that dispute and whether the Supreme Court has resolved that particular dispute or not. So the particular uh, case that I refer to in my paper is a case filed by a group of uh, conservationists um, called Wildlife First, and there are other nonprofits as well. And they challenge the constitutionality of the Forest Rights Act. And their basis of challenging the constitutionality was the provision, I mean, Article 14 of the Right to Equality where they basically stated that this particular law by recognizing the rights of certain communities to forest land and not others was violating this article. And it went on into sort of other articles within the Indian constitution. But the challenge that it definitely posed, if one were to look at the forest law regime in the Indian context, was it was challenging the conservation practice of excluding communities and creating these inviolate spaces. And a lot of these groups have had a history of working in tiger reserves and assisting the forest department in relocating forest dwelling communities outside of these forests. So it comes from a certain um, understanding of what conservation really means. The Supreme Court uh, has interestingly passed, uh, you know, a series of interim orders and several other uh, sort of, you know, orders that have stemmed out of this particular case. And in February of 2018, what it did was it ordered for the eviction of communities whose rights had not been settled. And this was sort of a clear violation of the Forest Rights Act because the Forest Rights Act doesn't necessarily have a deadline within which implementation has to take place. So that created a lot of, uh, you know, uncertainty and, and panic within the forest dwelling communities across India. But eventually the Supreme Court sort of stayed this particular order and has now focused its attention on the implementation of this act. So the mechanics of it, for instance, it's now asked the states to submit reports of how many claims have they rejected, on what basis have these rights, I mean, these claims to forest rights been rejected? You know, what are the, what is the kind of evidence you're using for the recognition of these rights? So it's, it's quite, uh, it's quite an interesting case and a, quite a telling case on the role of courts, uh, or judicial overreach in environmental governance, because a case that began as a challenge to the constitutionality of the act 
has now transformed into a case where it's uh, trying to be prescriptive about the day-to-day functioning of the forest department and the other institutional bodies involved in implementation. So is is the case that you talk about in the paper still an ongoing case then, or has it been resolved? It's still an ongoing case. So the hearings are still happening. Well, so in in your paper, you recommend a particular kind of perspective or way of looking at, considering, and hopefully resolving the kinds of problems that you're discussing in kind of a more, quote-unquote, experimental way. I mean, I wonder if you could talk about the approach that you're suggesting and whether elements of that are or maybe aren't reflected in how the Supreme Court and other institutional bodies have been addressing the kinds of disputes you're talking about. Absolutely. I think one of the realizations as I started working in this space was that conservation is is a is a wicked problem, but it's also deeply informed by the contextual realities. So the idea that you know, that guides conservation law and policy in India in this current moment is is quite a um, it's quite a f- sort of uh, one would describe it as you know pitting one approach against the other. There isn't any middle ground, and what I mean by that is either you have laws pushing for exclusionary conservation, which I've been speaking about. Or you have the Forest Rights Act, which speaks to complete community control. And the reality on the ground is very different because as much as we'd like, you know, the idea of self-determination and complete community control, communities continue to depend on the state for different kinds of uh, welfare services, as well as assistance on law enforcement, for example, if there's a case of poaching. So the approach that I suggest is to find that elusive middle ground. And the idea of experimentalist governance, which originated in the context of climate change, is was a fascinating one because it was not too prescriptive. It allowed for uh, localized solutions to be able to inform these decisions. And The broad framing that it speaks to is to have a rules-based framework that guides all these decisions, but leaves enough room that the solutions within that rules-based framework can be worked and reworked through an iterative process. That might sound a bit abstract, but to sort of, you know, make it more granular and applicable to what I am saying is if in India's forests, we say have a particular area which is used by the community for grazing, but also comes within the boundary of what is termed as a tiger reserve or a national park, which you have plenty of in in the US as well. There's a way in which these decisions of, you know, this particular area will be used for grazing this year, and then this perhaps it shifts so that the landscape regenerates are sort of localized solutions that one can see operating across the board. So why not make room within the law and the governance structure to enable these sort of, you know, 
problem solving techniques at that granular level as opposed to something that continues to pit the forest department or the indian state against forest dwelling communities because the solution as i say in the paper somewhere in between as i understand it this paper is just one sort of iteration of a larger scholarly project that you've embarked on. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about your research more generally, sort of what have you been doing in this area and sort of what are your broader goals with this particular research project? So I'm right now um, working on my PhD. So my PhD actually looks at the provision of free prior and informed consent, which is a legal provision where it makes it essential to obtain consent from the indigenous community before land is acquired for any development project. So I look at that provision and it's uh, sort of how it entered into the Indian context through the Forest Rights Act and how it's being implemented uh, at the moment. And in it, what I, the arg- argument I try to make is the importance of deliberative democracy in decision-making around conservation and development in India's forests. Because like I've been um, saying earlier as well, um, India's forests have seen uh, you know, two uh, competing priorities shape the realities of these communities. One is exclusionary conservation and the other is extractive development. And so how does one look at deliberative democracy in such a, a, a you know, political context? And how does a legal provision like consent enable or limit that possibility? Well, so maybe you could talk a little bit about the kind of on-the-ground research that you've done. I mean, I mean, it sounds like you've been doing a lot of work at a kind of theoretical level of looking at what the law says and how it works sort of in theory. But in addition, sort of on-the-ground talking to people and understanding how these disputes kind of play out in practice. Um, yeah, so a lot of my... Uh writing is informed by field work. So what I've essentially been doing uh, before I embarked on a career in academia was I was practicing as an environmental lawyer for about four years where I was working closely with these communities uh, in three states in India, uh, assisting them in filing these forest rights claims or other disputes that they had with the administration. So that kind of set me off into a, a a scholarly career that is quite heavy on the practice side. So uh, even though I'm trying to aim for these theoretical arguments, they're informed by interviews that I have been doing in the eastern state of Orissa. In particular, I've been doing fieldwork in Niamgiri, where there was a proposed bauxite mine, but the community managed to you know, secure their rights over that sacred hill. Um, the other is in the coastal part where a steel plant is being set up and, and trying to look at how communities are resisting the acquisition of land and how they're using the law there. And lastly, it's the expanding coal mine in Sundargad in Orissa. So in, in many ways, my work takes me around Orissa quite a bit and it it's long journeys in rather uncomfortable buses, but it's it, it's very enriching and I wouldn't trade that for anything else. Well, Arpita, in in closing, I mean, it struck me 
reading your paper that you're talking about this really kind of fascinating and difficult problem around forest rights and indigenous peoples, you know, in one particular context. But a lot of the observations that you're making in the paper and in this interview seem like they might have broader implications about kind of Indian society and Indian kind of constitutional questions. I wonder if you could briefly reflect on those. So one of the things I feel like this particular area of research informs us about India's democracy is it's always been a site of contestation, but it's always been a site of contestation for communities who've been able to gain some kind of political clout. And what's interesting about forest-dwelling communities is they historically had uh, one very prominent leader during the making of India's constitution, Ajaypal Singh. But ever since, there have been some movements which have gained that kind of political clout and the ability to shape the discourse. But it's only been social movements and protests ever since that have led to some kind of legal gains. And just studying that particular interaction between, um, you know, India's democracy and how it how it how it's shaped by social movements, but also how the law in many ways is uh, becomes that tool for expressing or articulating uh, these interests. So that I think is, is quite a bit of learning that's happened. Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure talking to you about, about this paper and about your broader project. And um, I look forward to reading more from you about these really interesting and contentious problems. Thank you so much, Brian. I really enjoyed speaking to you. 